0: Amos 5, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 today. Let's go ahead and begin uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for your grace to us. We even thank you for the truth that we just discussed here in Philippians 2, that you have emptied yourself, that Christ has emptied himself, not in the sense of becoming less than God, but through the addition of, of human flesh, what we call the incarnation. And it is because of the incarnation that you extend salvation to the human race. You became a human so that you could uh, die on our behalf, and you extend the gospel to us, and so for that we thank you. We pray that you might help us as we continue to what sometimes may seem like trudging Through difficult passages in Amos, we are people um, in our country and in American Christianity, very broadly speaking, who imagines that all of the promises for good in Scripture apply to us and never any of the promises for evil. And help us to look at these passages that are also promises and they are hard truths, Help us to understand what you mean by them, and that if we are in any way in sin, that we might repent, and that we would restore, through that repentance, that you would restore our fellowship with you. We thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. From the beginning of time, the divine call to the human race has always been the same. Seek the Lord and live. The way back to God costs you nothing but your pride. It is difficult, yea, impossible, to imagine a simpler way for mankind to find his way back to the Lord. This is, of course, that is to say, seek the Lord and live. This is, of course, the gospel in a nutshell, The message of the gospel in its most basic form is to seek the Lord, is to seek Christ. And even the Lord's call to Adam and Eve in in the Garden of Eden after they sinned, his call of where are you, that was in itself an invitation to seek him. God was not confused. He had not misplaced them. He did not say, oh no, where did they go? He knew exactly where they were. But the question, where are you, was a prompting to return to me, come back to me. The Lord was saying, don't hide from me. Come to me and seek me out. Elsewhere, of course, in fact, all over scripture, we see this call. We see this in Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him While he is near. In Jeremiah 29, 13, we read, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Or Zephaniah 2 and verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And that is really what the text in front of us in Amos 5 is about. The, the, the first 17 verses of Amos 5 gives to us four different times uh, some variation of this call. Seek the Lord, seek me, seek good, seek righteousness, so on and so forth, again and again and again and again. And so let's go ahead and, and open this up and read this together. Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We read this, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter Gilgal, Or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth, He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes on the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time." Seek good and not evil, that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said, hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Well, we've bitten off more than we can chew today. (laughs) It's a little bit of a lengthier passage, and we're going to look at this. And and we are going to move somewhat quickly through this. But uh, the outline today, a little bit longer, we have six points, okay? We are uh, going to see in this lament, seek, fear, guilt, obey, and then the final therefore. Because of all of these things, therefore, this is what I will do to you. This passage in Amos chapter 5 is really a funeral dirge. It is a funeral procession. We, of course, read in the first three verses where he says, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. It is a lament. It's a funeral lament he says O house of israel fallen no more to rise is the virgin israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up for thus says the lord god the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of israel israel has fallen and is in the process of falling in amos 5 the lord is presenting a lamentation here a funeral procession of sorts And I I kind of think of, uh, when when I think of a a, a funeral, I think of kind of this uh, stereotypical funeral procession where everybody is wearing black and uh, it's raining and everyone has black umbrellas, you know, and they're all at this funeral and everyone is weeping and wailing. This is um, the, the picture here, and actually the picture is a little bit worse than that because it, it always, always, always is, is exponentially worse when the person at the funeral, the person who has died, is a child. And that's what is being pictured in this passage. You have here, in these first couple of verses, Israel is presented to us as a virgin, which is signifying Israel's youth I mean you think of someone who is described as a a virgin and you think of typically uh, someone described who has marriage and children and many 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 years ahead of them and that's kind of the picture that you have here of Israel Israel is described as someone who their best days were ahead of them kind of in a sense Uh, To describe Israel as a virgin who has fallen is to describe Israel as one whose days are cut short. And we can see that here even in verse 3 because he describes this a bit more. And and he describes the fact that 90% of the population is wiped out. 10% remains. He says the city that went out, a thousand shall have a hundred. 10% left. And that which went out a hundred shall have 10 left, 10% left. And the fact that there is, as this passage says, none to raise her up means that her downfall is sure. It is guaranteed, which actually makes us wonder why the next section, if if, if this, if the downfall of Israel is certain, if it is over with, then why write any more past this? The reason is that there is still, even in the midst of all of this despair, a thread of gospel hope that is woven in this particular text. And we see that in verses 4 through 7. We see this call to seek the Lord. This invitation is repeated several times. And the invitation is simply, seek me and live, verse 4. And as we saw in the introduction, this is the most basic and essential command. It is to seek the Lord and live. It is to, as we might say today, to seek the Lord and live is to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation. To find life is to find Christ. And we know this from John fourteen six because Jesus is specifically connected to life. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, verse 4 and verse 6, and others as we will see soon, is not just one choice among many. It's not just an invitation to seek out the Lord, but if that option doesn't work for you, then you can seek out the local river God. This is not what this invitation is. It is a very specific and direct message to seek out a very specific God, namely the one true God. Those who seek out false gods will be destroyed. Those who seek out false gods will ultimately fail. We are called in this text to seek the Lord, Yahweh, the true God, and live. What more gracious invitation can we receive as mankind can, can can you think of something that is more gracious seek the lord and live it's not subparagraph 4 article 3 seek the lord and live I challenge you to find a simpler arrangement offered to you by any god, you, little g god, you will not find one. The gods who are made in the image of men, they come with their offers of life and they say, do this and then do that and then come back to me. And there's always this little caveat at the end. And depending on what mood I'm in, I will decide whether you live or die. On the contrary, you have here a promise of God, a foundational commitment of the Lord that all who seek Him will have life. God is always faithful to His word. He is always faithful to His promises. And therefore, this is a sure promise. This promise of the Lord... The simplicity of this promise, this offer, seek me and live. It's followed up by a warning. If you seek me, you will live. If you don't, or you shouldn't do this, alternatively, verse 5, the warning is this, do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. We talked about some of the association with idolatry that these communities have, uh, particularly Bethel, which may have been kind of the foremost community in Israel for idolatry. And so he gives this warning, seek me, but don't seek this. And then he gives a second call to seek the Lord, a follow-up in verse 6. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. Bethel. Now, I want to take a, um, uh, a a little side jaunt here for a minute and say that there has been uh, a bit of ink spilled on this portion of Scripture because there is difficulty in trying to reconcile two different things. And those two things in this passage I alluded to earlier is... The statement, Israel fallen no more to rise, seek me and live. Which one is it? Is Israel fallen no more to rise? Or is there opportunity to seek the Lord and live? How do we reconcile those two statements? Um, the, the reason that there, is, that, that there seems to be discrepancy on the surface an apparent discrepancy is is because of this if god has already decided to destroy israel is the invitation seek me and live a real invitation do you, you see that it's it's i'm going to destroy you you're done for this is sure this is certain you're doomed seek me and live seek me and live you you just said that. How can this be a real invitation to seek you? That's kind of the tension that has been um, that th- that exists in this passage. And I would suggest to us, um, without maybe trudging through all of the all of the the spilled ink on this, is to simply understand it this way: God is going to, for sure destroy israel 722 bc this happened they fell does that mean that the call to seek god and live is not a real call no it is a real call because individuals within the nation of israel could repent and believe and have life even though the nation as a whole falls so 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 both realities are true and there's not a contradiction there um this has always been the case. People are always extended the offer of repentance. In Psalm sixty-nine, thirty-two. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Let me extend to, um, to, to all of you here some encouragement on this topic of seeking the Lord. I know that it's, we can talk about this kind of up here. And then when it comes to your Monday through Saturday, there's the wrestling. Maybe even wrestling in the sense that we've been talking about at the 9 a.m. service, the assurance of faith. I think I'm seeking the Lord. I don't know if I'm seeking the Lord. Am I really desiring him? Am I not? Is this genuine? Is this not? And you're wrestling through this particular thing. I want to give to you, Um, Maybe just some medicine from the Puritan Thomas Manton, who says this. He says, Though it may be at first you do not find him, yet comfort thyself that thou art in the seeking way, still in pursuit of him. Better a seeker than a wanderer. And perhaps maybe this would offer some encouragement to those who may be discouraged. And that is... It is to acknowledge that none of us here seek the Lord with perfection. None of us here seek the Lord as we ought. You will always be able to say... I need to seek Christ more. You, you, will, you will leave every sermon, every message, every Bible reading, every prayer time, every fellowship. You will leave all of those things. And there will remain a degree of inadequacy. That is discouraging. It is. In fact, if it's not discouraging, there's probably something wrong. And yet I want to put some encouragement in here. Are you seeking him at all? Is there a desire to seek him? And I, I feel like I'm seeking, but I haven't quite found, and I haven't, I mean, around this corner, and, and I, I uh, uh, better a seeker than a wanderer. You're going to stumble and fall, and you are going to sin but continue to seek Christ. Seek Christ again, and again, and again. It is certainly better to be a seeker than a wanderer, and it is certainly better to be a seeker than to be intentionally swimming upstream against God's commandments. You see, this this is the contrast in this particular text. He's saying, seek me and live And then he paints a picture of people who are running in the opposite direction in verse seven, because he says, oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Remember that Amos, a significant part and theme of the book of Amos is, is against injustice. And you have these Israelites turning justice into wormwood, which was a bitter plant. There was injustice in the courts And that is how what we saw from a couple of weeks ago, you may remember, that certain people in Israel built their wealth. Remember we said wealth in itself is not sinful, but it was the manner in which these Israelites were building their wealth. They were utilizing the courts to uh, squash the person who was poor, and they were building their wealth on top of that. A court of law is supposed to level the playing field of sorts so that justice is served. One in a court of law is not to be biased toward a person or against a person based on their wealth, ethnicity, any other factor. Leviticus 19.15 says this, "...you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great." but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Do you see how Leviticus 19 catches you on both sides? You might want to fall off the one cliff like Israel is doing and be partial to the great, right? You kind of build your wealth that way by squashing the poor, but he also says don't be partial to the poor. Don't think because that person is poor, they can now get away with this injustice, which is more of what Uh, I think our culture today would lean towards with some of the the influences that we have today. Don't fall off in either direction. Righteousness. Don't worry about how much money that person has. Don't worry about what their ethnicity is. Did this person do right or wrong? Did this person do right or wrong? The standard is God's word. And yet Israel goes ahead and they corrupt this. And what we find out with, with, with Israel is that they're given this offer to seek the Lord. Don't go to Bethel. Don't go there. What you're doing, though, is you're turning justice into wormwood. You're, 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 you're casting down the righteous to the earth. But they find out quickly, or they will find out quickly, that they're messing with the wrong person. They're messing with God. And that is what God makes clear in the next section, because there is supposed to be some fear instilled into these people. We read in eight through nine, he who made the Pleiades and and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day to night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes on the fortress. Now he does the same thing that he did last week and that is namely this, that when God wants to get people's attention, what does he do? What does he do? We saw it last week. Happens in the book of Job. He tells them, what's that? His attributes. He gives the people his attributes, right? He did this in Job, remember? Remember, Job's primary question is why, and God's primary answer is who. He never answers, he never says because. He says, who are you? And oh, by the way, this is who I am. And we saw this a couple weeks ago because he was giving his attributes, and he does that again here. And there is some irony here because God references the fact that he's made the constellations. You see that there in verse 8, he who made the Pleiades and Orion. These are constellations. Later on, not this week, but later on in chapter 5, we will learn that Israel is actually engaging in star worship. They are worshiping the stars. And um, Israel's star worship cult is completely illogical. It makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> you're not worshiping a God. You're worshiping something that God made. He, he said, you're worshiping the stars. I made the stars. How does that make any sense at all? Paul offers a very similar argument at Mars Hill. On Mars Hill, Paul tells the philosopher men that God has created everything that they're worshiping. We worship this and we worship that and we worship this and we worship this. By the way, did you guys know that there's a God that made all of those things and you're worshiping his creation and not him? kind of the argument that Paul gives at Mars Hill. It's it's almost like when 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 you make this when you expose people in this way, it's almost like uh these people Israel and the people uh Mars Hill it's like you're dressed up in this clown costume and Paul comes along or Amos comes along and he simply brings a mirror with him and he says, "Why don't you look inside the mirror and see how foolish it is to do this?" He's just exposing the folly of idolatry. Israel's folly is exposed. Their folly is exposed because they are worshiping the creation and not the creator. And their folly is exposed because it this this is not it's not like you're messing with the class bully, okay? It's not like you can just go home and you're you're safe now. They're messing with the one who made the stars. The one who actually takes the earth and rotates it on its axis. The one who controls the sea and the waves. And the one who can destroy. This is the one they're messing with. God gives his autobiography here. And he simply says, are you sure you want to do this? And it has gotten bad. In fact, now we end up seeing kind of an indictment or a section on guilt Seek me and live. By the way, you're destroying justice. And by the way, I made the constellations in the earth and the stars and everything. And let me tell you the list of grievances I have against you. We read that in 10 through 13 where we see they hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate, therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time for it is an evil time. Now, in verse 10, we see one of the predominant characteristics of the wicked. Do you see what that is? Look at verse 10. One of the predominant characteristics of the wicked is that the wicked hate everyone who speaks truth. You, You can just speak the truth, You can just speak the truth in this particular tone of voice right here and say, I love you and I care for you. And the Bible says you need to repent. And the wicked hate that. They despise it. This can be seen particularly today on, in the public square. I want to give to you some passages that uh, just reaffirm this. Um, you have in uh, Proverbs... 9 and verse 8. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you." you. See the difference there? A wise man loves reproof. Let me say that again. If you are wise, you will love reproof. You will not endure it. You will not tolerate it. If you are wise, you will love and cherish reproof. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Stupid people hate it when other people confront them. Proverbs 15 and verse 10. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Proverbs fifteen twelve. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Psalm 50 and verse 17. For you hate discipline. And you cast my words behind you. Likewise, uh, another Puritan, Thomas Brooks, says this. uh, "An humble soul is all forehead, able to bear reproofs with much wisdom and patience. Oh, but a proud heart cannot bear reproofs. He scorns the reprover and his reproofs too. Now, I did a little bit of digging here, and I even consulted with someone um, who has done quite a bit of uh, research on the Puritans because I was trying to figure out what in the world does all forehead mean? (laughs) And uh, I ended up finding several other places. I I couldn't get a a clear answer. I think I have a clear answer. But I looked up, Thomas Brooks uses this phrase a few times, and after reading the different contexts, I think it basically means, from what I can tell, thick-skinned. Okay, some of these little English phrases are lost to history, okay? Uh, When he says a humble soul is all forehead, he's saying, I think, a humble soul is thick-skinned, okay? People who are thin-skinned are generally proud. People who are thick-skinned are generally humble, and they know not only how to laugh at themselves and not take themselves too seriously, but also how to hear rebuke. If you're you're thick-skinned or if you're all forehead, then then you don't become offended every time somebody says this or that or that. And that's kind of the gist of what's going on here. The the humble person loves reproof. Thick-skinned people, at least in this context that we're talking about here, generally have soft hearts. And hard-hearted people typically have thin skin. They get offended every time somebody says something against them. And they run, and, and some people get so offended that they just run from church to church, leaving uh, uh, a wake of destruction in their midst, broken relationship after broken relationship after broken relationship, because they're getting offended and offended and offended and offended and offended and offended. And offended, and offended. Um, we need to not flee when we are confronted or rebuked. Thomas Watson says who is angry with the physician for prescribing a bitter potion seeing it is to purge out the disease tis mercy to men's souls to tell them of their sins this is a mercy it is an act of grace to do this Israel on the other hand was upset that anyone would have the audacity to confront them And the world is also angry when we confront them today. But I do want to give you um, two cautions here, okay? I want to give to you two specific cautions. Let's just refresh our minds here for a minute. Verse 10, Amos 5, verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Ungodly men and women hate people who speak the truth, ungodly men and women hate people who reprove okay caution number one people get mad for many reasons not just one that's simple enough one of the reasons that people get mad is when you tell them truth but that's not the only reason that people get mad and so we need to be cautious we are exhorted in Scripture to preach the truth in love, okay? So, you could give the truth to someone, and they might be angry because you gave them the truth, and you could give the truth to someone, and they could be angry Because you were a jerk about it. Okay? I remember one pastor said that some people don't know the difference between being an evangelist and being a jerk. Okay? And we need to understand that if someone is going to get upset with you, it ought not be because you were a jerk. It ought to be because you gave them the truth in love. And that's what they... They need to get mad at the content of the message. Itself. And in order for them to get mad at the content of the message, I have to strip away everything else that could cause them to get mad at me. That's caution number one. Second caution, caution number two, is always this, that we are not merely looking at Scripture so that we can point the finger outside, but that we are looking at Scripture and allowing uh, 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 it to, um, as, as Hebrews 4 says, the sword that pierces into our hearts, okay? Am I one who despises reproof? You must seek out accountability for yourself. That is part of being in church. That is part of being committed to a church. And I would suggest to us, this is also part of being a member Of a church is that you have committed yourself this is the place that i will seek out accountability part of what membership is doing is it is making it more difficult for you to flee if things get hot you don't want an easy exit from the church Now, granted, and I did a whole podcast on this a couple years ago, there are biblical reasons to leave a church, okay? You want to make it kind of challenging for you to leave a church. For accountability reasons, one of those reasons is that. I had an interesting series of interactions this week with a charismatic group down in Holmes County. Some of you, uh, I talked to you a little bit about this. And I wanted to read to you um, one of these churches, very, very, very charismatic church. Um, I want to read to you part of their church constitution. They uh, reacted to um, uh, the government of the local church, and they decided that this is how they were going to run their church. They said, church organization is de-emphasized. We try to keep it simple without giving much time and energy into complex bureaucracy or any form of democracy. We simply believe that the senior pastor is responsible for the church, responsible to hear from God, and responsible to feed and love his people faithfully. You see what they're doing? You catch that? No government, no structure, no anything... (laughs) senior pastor he's the top dog okay translation no accountability for that man number one and number two you you can't you can't ever say that he's wrong he's god's man (laughs) if you are going to say he is the one he is the guy then how could you ever be wrong according to that standard? Now, of course, this church also has no church membership. So not only are they saying publicly, we believe that the senior pastor should not be accountable to anyone. We believe that nobody in the church should be accountable to anyone is essentially what's going on here. And it's just kind of this free-for-all that's going on. Instead of this, we need to be, as Brooks might say, all forehead. We need to be thick-skinned. We ought to receive rebuke and accountability and even invite it. That's, that's, the, that's the second warning here, is that receive, run into places where you can be held accountable. Israel did not do this. Instead, they oppressed the poor. Verse 11 makes this clear, they trampled the poor, they taxed their grain, they built houses on their backs, and therefore God says they will not enjoy these luxuries that they have gained through extortion. In verse 12, he says that their transgressions are many, their sins are great, they afflict the righteous, they take bribes, and they ignore the needy. Those who are wise will be silent, according to verse 13. And all of this brings us to the next section here, and that is verses 14 through 15 where we simply read, seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Of course, this is the call that we heard earlier, the one to seek the Lord and live. I told you there were different variations of this in this passage. You have seek good and not evil. God promises that if they do this thing, he will be with them. They are... Uh, In verse 15, to establish justice in the gate. What does that mean? To establish justice in the gate is to establish justice in your community, in your nation, in your state, in your so on and so forth. Now, there are two diametrically opposed views in Christianity about the Christian's responsibility in the local community. And then there's a thousand variations between those, okay? Some Christians, if we were to go all the way to one extreme, some Christians believe in what you might call the social gospel. You some of you are familiar with that term, the social gospel, okay? The social gospel means essentially that you can share the gospel with someone just as much by building a water well for them as you could in actually articulating the gospel so a christian quote-unquote humanitarian group might go into a third world country and they might build a water well and they might build some infrastructure on this missions trip and they never, ever share the gospel. They never open a Bible. They never hand out tracts. They never do any of those things at all. And then they come back to report to the church, and they say, we shared the gospel with these people, okay? That is the social gospel, okay? That is where you are engaged in your community and in your world, but you do it completely apart from the Lord. Now, that's, that's wrong, obviously, okay? Um. On the other hand, if you go to the other extreme, some Christians believe that Christians ought not involve himself or herself in the affairs of the world at all. Um, So monks are kind of an an extreme example of this. I'm just going to go off and detach myself from the world. Um, This actually, by the way, um, I, I love... Uh, John MacArthur on almost absolutely everything that he has this is one of the way the, one of the places I depart from MacArthur MacArthur holds a form of this where he says um, in his words temporal methods to promote legislative and judicial change that uh, we should not use that and I this probably warrants a longer discussion <laughs> a little bit here okay um we are not to detach ourselves from our communities. We are not to pursue our communities apart from Christ as the social gospel says. I would simply propose this as the answer. We are to establish justice in the gate through the gospel. We are to address what's, we're supposed to vote. We can do those kinds of things, but it is done on the foundation of the gospel, okay? That is to say that we engage the culture without divorcing that engagement from Christ, okay? So I can go up to a a, a lawyer and I can say quite simply that you as a lawyer need to be just in your dealings because there is a lawgiver that is higher than you and judges men. Okay? I'm, in, I'm establishing justice in the gate, like Amos says, but I'm not divorcing it from the authority of Scripture. Just keep those together. We can petition politicians to enact just laws, and we can tell them, and we need to tell them, that the reason is because there is a God in heaven who's watching them establish justice in the gate but do it on the authority and foundation of scripture we can do this through voting we can do this through community engagement we can do this through building relationships with government officials we can do this and some christians even um called to 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 be in office themselves the end of verse 15 says that if israel does this if they will establish justice in the gate if they will seek the lord and live he says it may be that the lord the god of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of joseph because if not they will experience the following in verses 16 through 17. Hang on with me, I got a couple more minutes. I know I've gone a couple minutes over, um, but you'll forgive me. Uh, 16 through 17 therefore thus says the lord the god of hosts the lord in all the squares there shall be wailing and in all the streets they shall say alas alas they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation and in all the vineyards there shall be wailing for i will pass through your midst says the lord at the end of the day the lord is moving in for judgment on israel okay there will be wailing mourning and lamentation God will pass through their community. This is not a good thing, that God is coming here. So the question is, after uh, drinking out of a fire hose on 17 verses, where do we go from here? And I want to apply the text in three ways today. The first application, we're just going to take it directly, word for word, from the passage and that should be obvious, and that is seek the Lord and live. Now, what this means is to repent and believe in the gospel. One New Testament parallel to this is uh, Matthew 7 and verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So the first and foremost call in Amos <clears throat> in today's passage is to restore right worship. Before anything else, seek the Lord and live. Worship the Lord. Repent and believe on the gospel, because Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me." There's no, there's no other. Like we said earlier, you don't. If that doesn't work out, you go to the local river god. No. Okay. If that doesn't work out, I'm going to go to this. No. It's Christ alone. You cannot address, and and by the way, this is the foundation for the social issues, okay? How do you establish justice in the gate? You have to start by seeking the Lord. That right, Right behavior comes from right worship, right? You can't worship if you don't know Christ. The second application today is invite and welcome rebuke. In fact, I might even say seek it out. Proverbs twenty-seven, six says, "Faithful are the wounds of a friend; profuse are the kisses of an enemy." Um, we all of us need to be walking around with uh, some, some uh, with a limp and uh, a bruised shoulder that came from a friend uh, because they loved us enough to address something. Um, Welcome that rebuke. I'm telling you, by the way, to labor to this end, labor for this. Um, I, again, this group that I was um, interacting with this last week kept pushing unity, 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 and we need. And, and I, I believe that we need to be unified. Um. There is a a faux unity, F-A-U-X, faux unity, that happens through running away from problems. And there is a genuine unity that comes from working through those. The unity that many people like to seek, quote unquote unity, is I didn't get along with that person so I'm going to the next church and now I feel united with this church. Really? Really? That's not unity. Uh, Unity is working through those things. Fool, a fool will reject rebuke. Earlier we saw in Proverbs 9 that the wise man will love you when you rebuke him. It may be, I don't know, one of, I'll say it's one of, one of the easiest ways to tell the difference between a wise man and a fool. You want to just quick litmus test? How do I know the difference between a wise man and a fool? Rebuke them. And you'll know. Like within seconds. Third application. Establish justice in the gate. We are to seek out the well-being of our community and our nation. Everyone can do this. <clears throat> you don't, even if you don't hold office... You can seek the Lord yourself, and from there, you can cultivate a godly home. Godly communities, as the men saw yesterday in the men's study, godly communities are built on godly churches, which are built on godly homes, which are built on godly men, women, and children. So at a minimum, we can do that. You can't hold, maybe you're not going to be in public office, fine. It's not, but you can do this one thing, and if you have opportunity to do more, then, then by all means um just one maybe very specific application here on this is i understand why a lot of us do this but i I think in general it's probably unwise to avoid and try to get out of jury duty (laughs) Uh, did i hit something there (laughs) how many of you have avoided Seriously, what? We have to have an opportunity for a Christian influence in our community. If we don't do it, we're going to let the pagans do it? Is that what we want to do? When you when you when you who who do you if you go to the, to a law, if you go to court, who do you want there? A bunch of pagans or a bunch of Christians? I, Maybe you guys needed that little prod. I don't know. <laughs> uh, establish justice in the gate. Okay? I, there's a way to do it. And they ask you to do it. They're like, could you please come here and talk about justice in this? No, I don't want to. Okay. How about? And keep this in mind even if the American ship does end up finally and fully sinking, the hope of the gospel is that individuals within America can still be rescued from that ship. Seek me and live. Our fate is not tied to the fate of our nation or of our world. It's tied to Christ. You don't have to go down with the ship. You can be flown out. You can be medevaced out, okay? Okay. May we then be emboldened to share the gospel for such a time as this, and to exhort our neighbors to seek the Lord and live. Thank you, God, for your grace to us and for the gospel. Thank you for Amos and the timely message that this is. We pray that you might help us to apply this to our own lives. In Christ's name, amen.